0: Help defend the Church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the Church. Go to onepeter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the One Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. All here <laughs> we have Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition Praise the Lord, O my soul, in my life I will praise the Lord. I will sing to my God as long as I shall be. Put not your trust in princes, in the children of men, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit shall go forth, and he shall return into his earth. In that day, all their thoughts shall perish. Blessed is he who hath the God of Jacob for his helper, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who keepeth truth forever, who executeth judgment for them that suffer wrong, who giveth food to the hungry, The Lord looseth them that are fettered. The Lord enlighteneth the blind. The Lord lifteth up them that are cast down. The Lord loveth the just. The Lord keepeth the strangers. He will support the fatherless and the widow. And the ways of sinners he will destroy. The Lord shall reign forever. Thy God, O Sion, unto generation and generation. Psalm 145, Dewey Reams. I want to talk to you today about politics, which is something we don't talk about here for various reasons. But specifically, I want to talk about the problem with what I call political messianism. What does that mean? Well, those who seek a messiah in the political arena, who believe that if we just elect the right person, All of our problems will be solved. See, here in America, we are in the middle of election season. Our presidential elections are coming up this November, and there is quite a dog and pony show that goes on uh, in the year, in the two years that lead up to the election. Every candidate promises the world. Very few of them deliver even their backyard there is an axiom from our friend Anne Barnhart um, that I think is worth reflecting on at the outset of this conversation. And it is this. The fact that a given person is holding or seeking high-level public office is, in and of itself, proof that said person is morally and or psychologically unfit to hold public office. Do I need to read it again one more time? The fact that a person, that a given person, is holding or seeking high-level public office is, in and of itself, proof that said person is morally and or psychologically unfit to hold public office. What does this mean? It means that in a system like ours, where the only way to become an elected uh, official in high office, the presidency. Uh, The only way is to sell out. The only way to gain the coalition of support. The only way to garner the backing of power brokers. The only way to earn the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars needed for a successful campaign is to compromise. It's to compromise on your core principles. It's the only way. And every single time we have an election, we are told incessantly by our Catholic friends, peers, relatives, you must vote for such-and-such a candidate because if you don't, you're committing a sin. You must vote for such-and-such a candidate because they're the only principled conservative. You must vote for such-and-such a candidate because they're the only ones who are truly pro-life. You must vote for such-and-such a candidate because if you vote for anyone else, if you vote for someone whom your conscience tells you is the right person to vote for, but you know they don't really have a chance of winning, then you're essentially casting a vote for the other guy, the bad guy, the enemy, the pro-abortion, liberal, crazy whoever. And it's lies. Not intentional lies, not lies with the intent to deceive. We, I think, we get too wrapped up in this idea again of political messianism if i just elect the right guy they will fix the wrongs in society is you know, the more i watch my catholic friends argue with each other about the morality of voting for this and that candidate or of the immorality they allege of not voting at all as a conscientious choice because somebody perhaps wishes to abstain from voting because they feel that none of the choices are acceptable, well, then they will tell you, of course, that you're sinning. And they're wrong, but they'll say it. The more that I watch this arguing, this infighting, the more convinced I become that the Catholic Church was right in promoting monarchy as the best system of government. Because, frankly, we we delude ourselves by thinking that we can put a man into office who's going to solve these problems. The problems that face our society are moral. They're not political. They can't be solved through consensus or compromise or bipartisanship. We need conversion. We need a mass conversion of heart. There's a school of exegetical thought about Barabbas. You remember Barabbas, the one that the Jews wanted released instead of Jesus uh, at the tribunal before Pontius Pilate. Now, in my lifetime, in all of the, uh, the Palm Sunday pageants that I had seen, you know, where we all participate in this weird off-off-off Broadway production of The Passion, um, I had always understood that Barabbas was simply a, a, a violent man, a robber, a murderer. But there is an exegetical tradition that does believe that Barabbas was a revolutionary who tried to overthrow Roman rule in Judea, who essentially, as a revolutionary, was guilty of killing in the name of the cause. Now, this is significant when we contrast with our Lord, who was the true Messiah, but was not political. And that's what the Jews expected. They expected a Messiah who was a political figure, who came as a king to free them from bondage and, and to set them over the world as the chosen people. But that's not who he was because, as he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But if we look at Barabbas as a political figure, as a revolutionary, we see the contrast of, of us as men choosing what we want out of our messiah rather than what God gave us, which was not at all what we expected. But political messiahs always fall short because no man can make heaven on earth. Can't happen. Will never happen. And in a monarchy, you, you have the opportunity for a man, one man, who is entitled by his birthright, not necessarily because he's well-liked by the people to do the things that need to be done for the good of the country. Now, certainly he can be a tyrant. And there have been many despotic monarchs through the history of time. But he can also be a good man. And he can be a virtuous man. He can be a King St. Louis the IX. See, it's far easier to convert a single man to the truth or to, de- to depose a single man who is a tyrant than it is to convert 300 million voters or to depose 300 million people who believe that they should have mob rule. When a politician in a democratic system, a republic like ours, Has to count out to his constituents, has to make everybody happy, cannot vote or legislate or make executive decisions based principally upon his conscience, but must instead try to take into consideration all the various and conflicting inputs that he receives from his voters, then he can't make the moral decision. He's simply uh, it, it's a mechanistic determination. It's this is what the people want from me and they elected me. So this is what I have to do. But of course, it's not ever just what the people who elected you want. It's also what the people who put all that money, the millions and millions of dollars of campaign money in your pocket want you to do because you've been bought and paid for. These super PACs and the money that they put into these candidates, they expect them to. The, the candidate, once they obtain political office, to come to heel and do what they want them to do. It's only reasonable. This is what gives power to unelected officials, those who are not beholden to the people, those who do not have to be accountable to the electorate. They can do what they need to do because they believe it's right. Now, there are times when unelected officials don't have the power to do what they want to do. A perfect example would be the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had no right to decide what it did in Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion. And in fact, Justice Scalia, may he rest in peace, commented on this when that case was revisited in the 1992 Case Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In his dissent from the majority decision, he wrote, In truth, I am as distressed as the court is about the political pressure directed to the court, the marches, the mail, the protests aimed at inducing us to change our opinions, How upsetting it is that so many of our citizens, good people, not lawless ones, on both sides of this abortion issue, and on various sides of other issues as well, think that we justices should properly take into account their views, as though we were engaged not in ascertaining an objective law, but in determining some kind of social consensus. The court would profit, I think, from giving less attention to the fact of this distressing phenomenon, and more attention to the cause of it. That cause permeates today's opinion, a new mode of constitutional adjudication that relies not upon text and traditional practice to determine the law, but upon what the court calls reasoned judgment, which turns out to be nothing but philosophical predilection and moral intuition. Of course, what Scalia was referring to was judicial activism, this idea that the court can just decide what the law is or change it of its own volition. Scalia, as an originalist, believed that the Constitution needed to be interpreted according to the text on the paper and the views of those who wrote it. His contemporary Supreme Court justices did not all agree with that interpretation. They believed that the Constitution was a living document that should be Interpreted according to the whimsy of our times. Now, there are those in the Catholic media sphere who have made their case that Justice Scalia couldn't have been that traditional of a Catholic because, you know, he signed on to this whole Freemasonic project of the founding fathers of the United States. It's not my purpose to entertain frivolous arguments here. The fact is that this is a country that we live in and it has laws and a system of governance and has had so for the better part of 300 years. And we have to find some way to work within the confines of those laws. We can't snap our fingers and overnight turn it into a Catholic confessional state. We will not be seeing the coronation of a Catholic monarch. We have to respect the laws that exist and that are in place. I think often when having discussions on this topic about that scene, that famous scene from A Man for All Seasons where St. Thomas More is having a bit of a debate with the young William Roper about the merit of respecting existing jurisprudence, existing law. Have a listen. Arrest him. For what? He's dangerous! for a he's a spy! Father, that man's bad! There's no law against that! There is God's law! Then God can arrest him! While you talk, he's gone! And go he should if he were the devil himself until he broke the law! So, now you'd give the devil benefit of law? Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes! I'd cut down every law in England to do that! Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's, and if you cut them down, and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. And this was, in essence, the system of jurisprudence believed in by Justice Scalia. He respected the existing laws of the country, despite being a traditional Catholic who may well have personally believed in the superiority of a confessional state or a monarchy, but that's not the system that he lived within. He lived in America. And America's laws were those that he sought to uphold. And this is why his death struck such a blow to those of us who believe in what is good and in what is right. Because there are many men, like William Roper, who would seize power by any means necessary to attack the devil as they see him? On the left, that devil may be us. It may be our belief in the sanctity of life or in the fact that marriage is between a man and a woman and is a covenant between man and God. On the right, it's the issue of abortion, it's the issue of so called gay marriage. There's a desire to have the court be judicially activistic when it comes to pursuing the political goals that we wish to obtain. Well, the fact remains is that judicial activism is an overreach of power. And we see how important it has become to check that overreach of power when we look at the impact of the death of, of Justice Scalia, whom I've already mentioned. Removing him from the Supreme Court changes everything when it comes to the interpretation of the law in this country. And the reason is because he, as an originalist, sought to uphold the laws as they exist, not merely as he would choose to interpret them. With his removal and the potential for his replacement, either before or after the presidential election, Suddenly, the Supreme Court has become exponentially more important than it otherwise would have been. And it's being used. The vacancy on the Supreme Court is being used as a political gambit. It's being used by the current administration. It's being used by the candidates who are campaigning, talking about what kind of justices they would appoint. How many times have religious and political conservatives in America voted for a presidential candidate simply because of the likelihood that that president would appoint a justice to the Supreme Court. Something I call judicial roulette. I'll vote for a guy who I don't really believe in and whose views I don't really support on the off chance that he might, that he just might appoint a justice who will believe in originalism, in constitutionality, in upholding things like the right to life that is one of the fundamental understandings of the American system of governance. And what we wind up getting, almost invariably, is somebody who appoints a mediocre candidate, because that's the only kind of candidate for Supreme Court that can make it through the nomination process. And then we wind up with a Justice Roberts, who... Votes in favor of leftist policies like the Affordable Care Act. Or we look back and we see that the two Supreme Court decisions, the major decisions that legalized and upheld the legalization of abortion, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, were decided by a majority of justices who were Republican appointees. We cannot put our trust in princes. We cannot. So I'll leave you with that thought as we take a quick break. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Steve. Do you wear a brown scapular? Millions of Catholics around the world do. I've been enrolled since I was a kid. But there's a unique problem that comes from wearing this particular salvific accessory. They're, They're kind of unwieldy, and they're usually cheaply made. And a chintzy scapular, you know, it causes problems. You wake up in the morning and it's all tangled around your neck and you're choking on it, or maybe you've just gone through umpteen scapulars because the cord keeps breaking and there's only so many knots you can tie to try to hold it together. Well, the folks that wear the scapular made it their mission to solve this problem by making the last scapular that you'll ever need to buy. It's durable, it's rugged, and it's made to stand the test of time. In fact, they're so confident in the quality of their product that they offer a forever replacement guarantee. Buy one of their scapulars, and if for any reason it breaks, Let them know, and they'll send you a replacement for free, forever. I know, it's hard to believe, but that's what they do. And best of all, they give a portion of their proceeds to young men and women who are pursuing religious vocations. It's a win-win for everyone. If you want to get the last scapular that you're ever going to need to buy, go to 1Peter5.com forward slash scapular. Again, that's 1Peter5.com forward slash scapular, and get yours today. I'm Steve Skojak, and this is the One Peter Five Podcast. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. So when I see my friends on social media disparaging each other, ravaging each other, ending friendships that have existed for years because the person that they're having a discussion with supports a candidate that they think is morally unconscionable. It just underscores for me all the more, again, why the church has always looked at monarchy as the correct system of government. People are trying to apply situational ethics in the future tense predictive trying to decide what these guys are going to do once they're in office have no idea the full extent of their true influences and those power brokers to whom they are beholden and and, and friendships are ending over this i actually had someone unfriend me on facebook Just such a ridiculous phrase unfriending but they They unfriended me on Facebook because I was asking for the political rancor to stop. To just stop. Stop being so rabid in the condemnations of each other because there are good people with good reasons who vote for candidates who others may think are completely inexcusable. But we're brawling over, we are. Fighting over deck chairs on the Titanic. I want this one. I want that one. The ship is sinking. You may even argue that it's already sunk. I honestly believe that this election for America is going to be a footnote. It's going to be a footnote in history. We're already past the point where, where a presidential candidate can fix things. We've had abortion on demand for over 40 years. Some 53 million some lives have been taken through abortion. We we weathered a series of Planned Parenthood expose videos last year that showed the brutality and the callous nature of those who perpetrate these abortions. Video after video last year came out. What did we get? We got the people who made the videos under prosecution. And those who were shown breaking the law in the videos were let go. Guys, we're, we're in a Sodom and Gomorrah context, okay? I don't know. Maybe there's five righteous people left in America, and that's why God hasn't destroyed us yet. But we are not going to get out of this situation through an election. It's not going to happen. We're not even going to see a substantial change. We have not seen any substantial change in pro-life policy since Roe. It's a big political football. Everybody promises the world on both sides of the aisle, but there's really no significant statistical change in the number of lives lost through abortion, except those that are driven by cultural factors. We're not seeing political implementation of policies that are changing the status quo on these things. You know, at least 40% of the nation, maybe closer to 50, believes that abortion should be outlawed in some cases. Have they been able to gain political traction? Not that much. But less than 10% of the population of America, probably closer to 3%, is actively homosexual. But they've completely dominated the political cycle. They have forced their agenda through. We're dealing with with cultural and moral forces. We're dealing with principalities and powers. We are not fighting uh, against just bad ideas. Not anymore. Maybe that was the case at some point, but we're long past that. And honestly, I, I don't think that there's any way out other than... Than a divinely instituted reset. I don't know what that's going to take. I don't know what shape it will be. I and mean, you know, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want God to send fire from the sky, as Our Lady of Akita warned in October of 1973. I don't want nations to be annihilated, as she warned. But, but it's really not about what we want. It's about what God sees as best. We don't turn to Him. Unless we're desperate. Think about it. You know, I had a professor in college, a theology professor, who who said that man encounters God in one of two situations, poverty and plenitude. Poverty is the more likely of the two. In plenitude, people forget about God. But but in poverty, we're desperate. We don't have anything else we can do but but rely on him, but turn to him. It's only in desperation that we remember that we can do nothing without him. On a personal level, you know this as a sinner. Think of the times that you've committed sins, especially grave sins. You know, if you're far enough along in your spiritual life that that's no longer happening, then, well, man, God bless you. Seriously. But if you still fall into grave sins from time to time or even habitually, Think about the guilt and the shame that you feel and the desperation with which you turn to God and you say, Lord, I cannot overcome these sins, these temptations without your grace. We say it in the act of contrition. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. I can't do it without God's grace. We cannot fix Society without God's grace, without conversion. We can't end abortion through legislation. It takes conversion. We can't end sexual promiscuity through politics, through legislation, through FCC regulations. It takes conversion. We can't end pornography. We can't end homosexuality without God's grace, without conversion. There is no politician on earth, no matter what they say, that will be able to make a significant impact. They just can't. It's impossible. Men have to love God more than themselves. And let me be perfectly honest with you. I don't. I want to. I want to love God more than myself. It, it dawned on me recently after confession and I was, I was meditating, I was at mass and I was, I was thinking about who I am and what I do and the stupid things that I consistently repeat in my life because we're repetitive in our stupidity. And, and it dawned on me that I believe in God, but I don't love him, not in the way that I'm supposed to. I'll fight for him all day long. I love that he exists and that he has things that he wants done and that there's truths and and doctrines to defend because those are concrete things. But when it comes right down to it, in my relationship with God, in my ability to love a being whom is intangible to me, whom I do not really know on a personal level, and to give my life for him to give up the immediate gratifications of whatever sin, you know, for, for, for a being that I have never seen face to face. I don't love him enough. Do you? Because if we fall into these sins, uh, let's be honest, whatever they are, whatever our proclivities are, pride, vanity, sensuality, whatever they are, We commit these sins because we love ourselves more than God. That is the beginning and end of that story. Because when you love someone, you, you don't do things that hurt them. If you have a child whom you love, a child who's hungry, you don't sit there and watch soap operas instead of feeding your child. If you have a spouse whom you love, and you're engaged in behavior that's hurting them, neglect or abuse or whatever it is, you don't keep doing it. You change it. Because gosh damn it, you love that person. And their happiness means more to you than your habits. So when we sin, when we commit these sins, it's because of self-love. And as a society, we are the most narcissistic, self-loving group of jerks that maybe has ever walked the face of the earth. You know, you can look back to Rome and, and look at their debauchery, but they were pagans. What's our excuse? We exist in the shadow of giants, of Christendom. Our entire society is derived from the political philosophy that arose from Christianity taking over the Western world. And we're post-Christian we really suck, you guys. It's bad. It's extremely bad. And I don't care if you go into a voting booth and you pull the lever for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or whoever it is. That doesn't that is not the thing that makes you a good Christian or a bad Christian. Who you are voting for Barring those who explicitly are saying, I embrace and promote evil. If you're voting for someone who's at least saying the words, I want to fight this thing that's bad. I want to change it. And you believe for whatever reason, because I don't care what your reasons are. If you have come to the conclusion that that person is going to make some nominal difference legislatively or through executive power in this nation to stop some wrong, to stop some evil that is afflicting us, do it. Don't let other people tell you that you're immoral. Don't let people tell you you're not a good Christian. Don't let them tar you with guilt by association because such and such a candidate has followers that are doing bad things and so you're that way. No, you're not. Act upon an informed conscience. And you know what? If your informed conscience says vote third party or vote right in or don't vote at all, do it. Don't do it out of laziness. Do it because you believe it's what's right. Do it because you believe that the system is broken. Do it because you're tired of rubber stamping people that you don't agree with and that you don't want to hold your nose and vote for because you don't believe they'll uphold your beliefs. Trust not in princes. They can't be trusted. It's God. It's only God that you can trust. And unfortunately, right now, we have every indication that he's angry with us. Because we've let things get this far. And I know that can be hard to hear for those of us who care about doing the right thing and about what's happening in the world. But I don't know about you. I go to confession a lot. I've been to confession twice in the last five days. I fall and I fall and I fall. It's, I I do. And I could make the argument, oh, well, you know, I try to do this work for the church and, and the devil is after me to try to get in my way and, 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 you know, to stomp me down and, and, and knock me off, off course. Maybe that's what's happening. But I have choices to make. I don't have to sin. I don't have to give in to those temptations. I don't have to decide, you know, screw it. Everything stinks. The church is a mess. The world is a mess. What difference does anything make? I become apathetic. I fall into that. I had somebody call me last night. Somebody I, I don't know personally, in a way. You know, one of my online friends, we've had conversations before. Somebody whom I respect very much, who's suffering with a grave illness. And, um, and I've been impressed with, with their ability to endure that illness joyfully. And they called me up late last night, and they were just like, I just wanted to let you know I sensed that you're becoming discouraged, and I want you to know that that you're a hero to me. I, I was in tears. I was in tears, and even now, thinking about it, I'm getting a little verklemped because I don't deserve to be given that kind of an honor, to have somebody who's suffering with something so much more substantial and potentially life ending than I am. We all have our crosses that God gives us and we all have our fights. But for somebody like that to tell me I'm a hero, I'm just like, no, stop. I do what I do because I can't do anything else. It's not because I have any particular virtue. My courage in speaking out, if it's, if it's that, it's more that I just can't shut my mouth it's probably more of a vice. I don't know how to stop fighting this fight. It's what I know how to do best, but I'm worse at other things. I'm worse at being a good husband. I'm worse at being a good father. I'm worse at being a good provider. This isn't a job that pays well guys. My wife still works because I do this job and we've got six small children at home and one in college. I may very well be held to account for thinking that I needed to go off tilting at windmills in the church when maybe what I should have done is pursue a lucrative career so that I could actually, you know, provide for my family and create a traditional environment. My flaws are are beyond imagining. And if you admire me, it's only because you know me from afar. And the people who know me best kind of think I'm a jerk. And, and I'm sure that If you're within the sound of my voice and you're a human being, you can probably relate to that. Because we all put on this facade. We try to be our best self in public. But who are we really? We're all sinners. We're all fallible. We all hurt people. And this is why it seems insane to me to trust in politicians. Do you honestly believe that what you see in front of the camera is who they are? Whether it's bravado or humility. These people pay enormous sums of money, more than most of the people in my audience will ever make, to advise them how they need to act in public to be most well-liked campaign managers and PR staff image is carefully crafted it is meticulously cultivated I used to be in that business that's what they do and you want to tell me that that your candidate is the virtuous guy because of something he said in a press interview are you five years old do you really believe in fairy tales I fully expect that even the most prudent and apparently virtuous candidate that you see on a debate stage walks off that stage and F-bombs to their staff member about how they can't stand the other guy or what just happened. It's theater, everyone. It's political theater. Men of virtue do not obtain public office. They don't even get close, usually. So, make a vote. Make an informed vote. Make a conscientious vote. Do not castigate others because they disagree with you. Because all it does is make you ugly. Understand that the compromises that go on behind the scenes, I'm telling you guys, I live in Washington, D.C., I live right outside. I worked in the D.C. area. I've been here for over a decade. It's all politics all the time here. You don't get a job here that isn't at least partially subsidized by government money. I've worked with political appointees and operatives. My last big uh, PR job, my immediate boss was a presidential appointee for one of the big government agencies as a press secretary. Another one of my bosses was a bureau chief for one of the major news networks. I know <laughs> how these people talk behind the scenes. The people who go out to dinner with the Clintons after they get done with work. Put not your trust in princes. It's You just can't. Do the best that you can, but understand that we're at a point in society where this election is not going to change it. And if you live in another country, you already know. I mean, Europe, I saw an article about how Europeans are laughing at the intellectual capacity of our presidential candidates. Really? Because let's be honest, nothing says genius level political analysis like suicide by Islam. Europe has been so far to the left of us for so long. Latin America is riddled with socialism, as is Asia. Honestly, like where are we looking to take our political cues from? America's got a lot of problems, and we may be at the end of our run. But we're still better than 99% of available options out there. And that 1%, that's just me hedging my bets because maybe, I don't know, is Liechtenstein Okay. Is Monaco still Catholic? I'm not really sure. I'm fairly certain that there's not another country on earth that's in a better political situation. Mankind as a whole has fallen into debauchery largely through prosperity, partially through ideology. And Our Lady warned us that Russia would spread her errors and socialism, Marxism, communism, is everywhere so I should probably wrap this up I may have mentioned it already during this podcast but put not your trust in princes or in congressmen or in senators presidents supreme court justices just don't Because you will be disappointed. Invariably, they will let you down. They will make a promise. And the next thing you know, they will cut a deal. And it's the exact opposite of what you expected. Christ is our king. And any leader that doesn't acknowledge his kingship and the supremacy of the church that he founded Mm. yeah, you're already disappointed from the outset. And we don't have any Catholic monarchs left in the world. So we're pretty much just playing with the scraps that get thrown from the table. God will bring all things into order. He will bring mankind to heal. How he's going to go about it and what that's going to look like. Honestly, I kind of hope I don't live to see. Unfortunately, based on the state of affairs in the world, I I suspect that I may get a front row seat to that show. Be prayerful, be repentant. It's Lent. Do some fasting. I hate it, but it's awesome. I've failed more times in fasting during Lent than I have succeeded. But just by trying, I've fasted more than I ever have in my life. And I can see the power that it gives to a soul. We're all in this together. And faithful Catholics cannot afford to turn on one another now because of some stupid political race. Let it go. Pick the best guy and move on. And if your friend picks a different guy, I don't care how much you dislike him. If you respect that person, if you love that person, if you trust that person, don't end your relationship with them over that. Respect them enough to recognize that maybe they're making a decision for a good reason. Maybe they don't like your candidate for a good reason. That's something you didn't see. Who cares? Because we've got one enemy, and he's coming for all of us hard right now. And if we turn on each other, well, (laughs) whose camp have we fallen into? Because a house divided cannot stand. Let's pray for each other. Please pray for me. And pray for the political candidates that whoever the best man is in God's eyes, and however limited capacity that he wins and that some reforms happen. Pray for the reform of our country. Pray for the reform of our church. Pray for the conversion of our Pope and for the man he has empowered. Pray for his successor that we will receive a traditional, wise, holy, and courageous Pope. Pray for our bishops that they will stand for the truth and for our pastors as well. God bless you. Hold on tight. And thanks for listening. You have been listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. This has been a production of One Peter Five Incorporated, Copyright 2016, All Rights Reserved. Please remember to visit us online at wwwonepeter peter 5com You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash one peter five. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1 Peter 5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1Peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time... I'm Steve Skojak, thanks for listening.